For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. How do we help students become confident readers? And what do all our students need so they can enjoy reading success, especially during this unprecedented time? Welcome to Season 3 of Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. This season, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Scarborough's Reading Rope, a model that helps us understand the complexities of learning to read and helps us focus on evidence-based practices. Each episode will cover elements of the model, what it means, and how it should impact classroom instruction. We've lined up a dream team of Science of Reading experts we think you'll really love. The science of reading movement continues to grow and at a time that is more important than ever. It's vital we focus on research-based practices to deliver classroom instruction that allows students to learn. If they aren't learning, we need to examine our practices. We may not know what changes are coming next, but we do know we need to stay connected and learning from each other will get us through it. The more we learn and listen, the more we'll be prepared to lead. Our students are counting on us. Today we are joined by Kate Kane, professor at Lancaster University in the UK and an expert in early reading, specifically in the area of reading comprehension. She talks a bit about her view of reading comprehension, helping understand it in a broad way. Then we dive into language structures and how they support reading comprehension. It's a great episode as we continue to explore more elements of language comprehension. I know you'll enjoy. Kate Kane, we're so excited to have you on our episode today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Susan. I'm really looking forward to this and sharing my thoughts with your listeners. Uh, We appreciate it so much, and what we would love for you to do before we jump into our topic of the day is to tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself. Maybe how did you find yourself interested in this early reading space? Oh, gosh, how did I get here? Um, (laughs) So I guess um, my career path has not necessarily followed my plans. Um, When I I was about 14, um, I decided that I wanted to be an educational psychologist, um, in, inspired by a book written by an educational psychologist. So I decided to go and study psychology at university, which I started when I was 18. Um, but my, my actual degree was experimental psychology at Sussex University. So I learned a lot about experimental design, about statistics, child development, language 
adult language development amongst other things but it's probably really surprised listeners that I did absolutely no modules on reading development or literacy whatsoever um, and then I guess it's like kind of through sheer serendipity I met Jane Oakhill she, she was actually a postdoctoral researcher at the time there at Sussex and she supervised my final year project um, I mean, it wasn't actually on children's reading, it was on memory. But I, I, I mean, I just, I just loved it. And the research bug just absolutely bit me. Um, and so after a couple of years working as a researcher, I then um, studied for my doctorate, which was this time on reading comprehension, um, specifically children's reading comprehension difficulties with Jane as my supervisor. Um, and I guess it was, you know, a really enjoyable and productive experience because I've continued to work on the same broad topic. Um, and I also continue to collaborate with Jane, which, which is lovely. So never quite made it as an educational psychologist, but like to feel that what I'm doing has still got applications and is still helping children out there. Hmm, that's fascinating. And Jane was, Jane O'Kill was another great guest who we learn a lot from all the time, too. Um, but going back to this idea of the connection to memory, there is a connection to, you know, between that early work that you did with memory and, and actually how the brain learns to read. So it's not crazy that you went in a different path, maybe. It, no, no, it's not absolutely crazy. I mean, I think of memory, like working memory, as almost being like the workspace within which comprehension takes place. You know, and obviously we build up memory representations of texts as we read them. And we have this memory bank, this store of like kind of words and sort of syntax, syntax and all these different things we're going to talk about today. So, yeah, no, I'm not. Memory is very important in a variety of different ways for reading. Well, thank you for sharing that about yourself. And as you know, we're doing this series on Scarborough's Rope. We've dug into you know, our listeners have been introduced to the simple view of reading, what it takes to develop as a proficient reader. And actually, we've recently done a few episodes that dive into comprehension more specifically. Um, and we're going to get to sort of this idea of language structures with you. But before we go there, I'd just love for you to talk a little bit about what reading comprehension is. Mm, that's a nice easy question to I start know. with it's, it's a really small focused question <laughs> yeah. right <laughs> yeah um okay so I mean like reading comprehension is obviously about understanding the meaning of a written text and you know as you see in a model like Scarborough's rope um reading rope model which you mentioned and also um the simple view of reading um within these models we think about these two broad sets of skills that are important we've got the skills and the knowledge bases that enable word recognition and those that support language comprehension together um these enable us to have reading comprehension so understanding things that we read but i think that there's a couple of like sort of important concepts to get across to listeners so First of all, like successful comprehenders, they do not understand and remember every individual word or clause of a sentence or even sort of like remembering um, individual sentences in isolation. We're selecting the appropriate meanings of words in relation to the context or the topic of the text. Um, we're constructing the meanings of clauses and sentences. We're not remembering things verbatim. And then going beyond sort of like individual words and sentences, we, 
combining this information and we're integrating it to form a memory-based representation of the situation that's been described of the text or the state of affairs described by the text. And we typically sort of like refer to this as a mental model or a situation model. And, and one of the things that we do to make full sense of a text and construct a fully coherent, integrated mental model is we're not just working on information within the text, we're also like drawing on general knowledge outside of the text and that helps us to make full sense of the events, of characters' um, actions and um, their motivations. So, you know, there's a really wide range of language skills and knowledge bases that support language comprehension. You know, and this is certainly reflected um, in Scarborough's rope model, where we have these different, within these two sort of, the, we have these many strands, if you like. So we yes. have the knowledge, such as background knowledge and knowledge of word meanings, you know, verbal reasoning, our ability to generate inferences, and also sort of language structures, semantics mm. and syntax. So I've heard it said that, you know, authors don't write down every single thing that the reader needs to know. So that sort of has something to do with it, too, when you're saying constructing this mental model and bringing in some general knowledge to help you with that. Um, we, we have to sort of access all of those things. Certainly. So, I mean, a successful comprehender is not passive they are actively constructing the meaning from a text. You know, mm. the author wrote everything down. Um, you know, it would be very boring. It would be very repetitious, you know, making everything explicit. So there's work left for the reader to do to sort of like fully understand that text and construct the mental model. Mm. I like how you said that there's there's work left for the reader to do. And some of that work involves language structures. So what, what, what do we mean by language structures and, and maybe how are they helpful and important for readers? Okay, um, so if we think about the rote model, the language structures um, referred to there, we think of semantics and we think of syntax. So let's, we'll start with semantics um, and think about its relation to both vocabulary and comprehension, I think would be useful. And then move on to thinking about syntax. Um, and I think it's important to note to listeners that researchers are not always precise. We can be a little bit sloppy in the language we use. And I think there can be a lot of confusion because sometimes vocabulary and semantics are used somewhat interchangeably. But what we're really talking about with vocabulary, we're referring to the words a child has got in their or in their lexicon, what words do they know? With semantic skills, we're referring to the ability to understand these words and use them appropriately. Mm. You know, and a good example that's often used, like there's a world of difference between saying, I robbed a bank and a bank robbed me. Um, mm. You know, yeah. so it's actually sort of like that appropriate use. But, but when we're thinking about the study of semantics, we're often also talking about semantic relations. So we have some words are associated because they often occur together in texts because they actually kind of like occur together uh, in, in, in place. So collocations, thinking of like sand castle and beach. And we have other words that might be associated because they share features. So you can think of different shades of meaning, if you like. So cry, sob, wail, all to do with sort of like expressing um, that emotion. And then 
other words can be have related but also distinct meanings. So think of wave. You can wave hello. You can have a wave in the ocean. You can have a sound wave. And I think it can get a little bit confusing when we're thinking about the relation with comprehension because we often talk about um, vocabulary breadth, how many words does a child know the meaning of? And also vocabulary depth, what does a child know about these words? And often then we're really talking about semantics. Ah. And this idea that sort of, one, one of the things I think is important to get across is that comprehension of text is really enriched by access to having a lexicon of word meanings that we can use precisely, but also flexibly. We, often, we have a lot of words in our language that have multiple meanings. And um, it's also enriched by having these rich semantic networks where um, we have links between these related words, um, as I was sort of explaining before. <laughs> and in, if you think about it specifically in relation to comprehension and why this is so important, I mean, some of the work that I've um, conducted with Jane, actually, we've looked at this relation between um, vocabulary breadth and depth to inference making with vocabulary depth we're thinking about these rich semantic networks and these associations so children are actually able to use these words appropriately and we, we looked at that in relation to another important comprehension skill which is inference making and we actually found that vocabulary depth so children's knowledge about multiple meanings of words and the relations between different words and you know the precise context in which they should be used was a stronger predictor of some aspects of inference making than simply vocabulary breadth, word knowledge alone. So children who have these sort of like richer semantic networks are more likely to make critical inferences that are filling in sort of missing detail. I mean, you said earlier about, you know, like an author doesn't necessarily include all the details in a text. So the way we've looked at this um, experimentally is we've deliberately um, written text that keeps some details um, missing. So we might talk about somebody having a new pet, never specifying what that pet is. Mm -hmm. But when you have words such as furry or bark or kennel appearing in that story, it's a pretty good bet that the new yeah. pet is actually a dog. You're right. And, and, and children who have these richer semantic networks are much more likely to make those types of critical inferences. So they've actually got a coherent mental model rather than something that's a bit sort of like underspecified and fuzzy, if you like. So it's, you know, this is kind of let these different strands, and it's maybe something we'll get onto later, like kind of th th these different strands in the reading rope are kind of like really entwined with yeah. each other because comprehension is enabled by having sort of, you know, and sorry, comprehension is enabled by having access to this sort of like rich semantic network. And one of those comprehension skills, inference making in particular, is, is really enabled by that. So semantic knowledge enables better overall reading comprehension in general. Hmm. Um, Can I stop you for just sure, a second? Sure. Yeah, we just, um, the last episode, actually, mm -hmm. we had Nancy Hennessy on, and she was specifically talking about vocabulary, mentioned some of the sim you know, similar things to what you're talking mm. about. But I just, I just want to reiterate this point that when we look at the strands um, in, in the reading rope, that Yes, they are discrete, but the interconnection of all of them and how much more powerful they begin to 
be as they weave together to make strength of comprehension? I, I think that's a really critical point because we see it not just when you're understanding a text as you're reading it, we actually see these relations over time. So some of the work that I've done following children longitudinally and looking at skills such as vocabulary and inference making, we find that early vocabulary predicts their later inference making skill because they've got these rich semantic networks that enable them to fill in missing details in a text. And then we also find that their early inference skills predict their later sort of like depth of vocabulary knowledge, presumably because, and presumably it's because, you know, as we don't spell out every detail in a text and we have a lot of rare and infrequent words that we see in text. So you can use these skills, your inferential skills, to derive the meanings of unfamiliar words. So we can have the, you know, these beautiful sort of reciprocal relations between mm. these different strands across time. And I think it really demonstrates the importance of having that sort of comprehensive curriculum, if you like, that is fostering all of these different elements which combined go to create a successful reading comprehender. That's fascinating. And and two words there really resonate with me. First of all, the reciprocal nature of all of these things, how mm. one relates to the other, building one helps build the other, but also the, the term flexibility that you used in relationship to semantics um, and extending vocabulary, um, being flexible in your use of words. I think that's really powerful. Well, it's, it's very important because although we want children to have very precise knowledge, the meaning of a word and the emphasis on a word is very dependent on context. So obviously we have meaning words with multiple meanings, such as wave. Mm -hmm. And in order to either understand that word or use that word like in, in production, to be able to use it flexibly, you actually have to appreciate the context. So whether it's like wave hello or like kind of wave um, in the ocean or a sound wave, for example. Right. And it's these different sort of, it, and that is, you know, that richness enables you to have that flexibility but you obviously need to have that sort of distinct precise knowledge about the meanings of each of those different uses of a word like wave hmm. wow so there's a lot more to semantics than just the word meaning that's pretty deep <laughs> yeah it certainly is um so the other part of language structure then that you mentioned is actually syntax. What is syntax? Oh gosh, well, here's another place where we can be a bit <laughs> sloppy because we talk about grammar, we talk about syntax, um, and pe people will use them interchangeably. But um, I like to think of, and I'm, I'm supported in this by some other people, that when we're talking about grammar, we're talking about like kind of the set of rules that are talking about, you know, the correct sort of standard um, use in a language. When we're talking about syntax, we're talking about the study of sentences, sentence structure. We're thinking about sort of constructions within sentences. Um, and I think, you know, it's sentences are often ignored, actually, sentence comprehension. I'll, I'll try and remember to say a bit about why I think it's um, ignored in a bit. But if you think about, like, kind of as you're reading a text and as I was 
um, explaining earlier. You know, you're reading the words on the page and you're having to organise them into these meaningful units, you know, like noun phrases, clauses, Mm -hmm. multi-clause sentences. And these are the foundations to then understanding these paragraphs and passages. So understanding at the sentence level is is absolutely critical for good text comprehension, you know, passage comprehension. But but one of the things um, that we have in the majority of languages, um, and it's a very nice feature, um, but it is that languages allow flexibility in how we actually convey meaning. So simply knowing the... um, individual word meanings and attention to the word order alone is not going to be sufficient to have accurate sentence comprehension. You know, so a really good example of this that that most listeners are probably familiar with is thinking about the difference between the passive and the active voice. So, you know, the tiger was chased by the bear. Um, You cannot simply understand who was doing the chasing by word order alone. And you mm. find that sort of children typically they understand and also produce these like simpler sentence constructions, um, such as like sort of the active earlier than something um, like the passive. I mean, another example is sort of Im- embedded clauses, um, which are often included in assessments of syntax. But so um, an example is like the, the girl standing beside the woman was wearing a red dress who's who's wearing the red dress well if you don't get the embedded clause standing beside the woman you may misinterpret that sentence and not be able to sort of answer the question about who's wearing the red dress and it's thank goodness you didn't ask me who was wearing the red dress because I was trying to visualize it and I wasn't sure that I was keeping track (laughs) but but this is it I mean that's where memory comes in right You you, you have to keep track of these things um and so sometimes as i said like kind of readers um have to be active and so in order to have so that your representation is valid is real is in you know like the correct sequence you're you're having to manipulate those words and extract the meaning of them to integrate them so i mean a, a good example of this is thinking about um, the use of conjunctions or interclausal connectives. So, you know, we experience our world in chronological order. You know, you have morning, mm-hmm. you have afternoon, you have evening. But we can express the temporal sequence of events that have actually happened in our day in chronological order or also in reverse order. Um, and so word order alone doesn't always enable you to work out the actual meaning and sequence in time. I mean, it's something that a PhD student of mine recently did work on with um, children sort of like three to nine years of age. So, you know, obviously sometimes we our general knowledge helps us, you know, like he put on his shoes after he put on his socks. It's in reverse order, but your general knowledge enables you to understand sure. what's going on. Yeah. What about he played outside after he finished his homework? You know, you don't necessarily know. You can't do it through word order. You can't do it through general knowledge to actually extract the precise meaning of that sentence. You've got to know the meaning of this single word, whether it's before, whether it's after. Mm. And that will signal to you um, whether, you know, what the actual temporal sequence of events is. Now, I mean, you know, I've given 
um, some maybe silly examples there, but it can be, you know, quite superficial perhaps. But th- but this can be really important um, for readers to understand, particularly when it comes to understanding causality and when there is a temporal sequence that's leading to causality. Um, and I think, you know, it might sound, oh God, this is an awful lot for children yeah. and, and, and for readers <laughs> to do and take in, but... And and it's all very, very complex and difficult. But one of the really good things is that particularly when you think about interclausal connectives and conjunctions, you can think about them as being that they're often referred to as being a cohesive device, um, maybe like, you know, similar to pronouns. They're actually they could be used by the author to actually signal things to the reader about how to relate things. So, you know, like a pronoun, if you've got it or he or Mm -hmm. she it's telling you that it's referring back to something in a previous part of the text. So it's signposting to a reader. It's giving you some clues and instructions um, Mm. to be able to do that integration. Um, So, you know, these sort of like cohesive devices, they're they're not there to trip us up. They can actually be there as useful signposts. That's how I like to think of them, signalling some of the work that you've got to do in order to understand the text. Hmm. And then readers that are paying attention, so you mentioned that a few times, readers that are paying attention recognize these signposts, and if they have some sort of uh, ambiguity or unclear about how it relates, they actually know to go back and reread, right? Like a signal to go back and reread and figure something out. Yeah, so I mean, there's two things there. One is the attention part, you mm-hmm. know, attending to the precise particular words such as before and after. And the other one is reflecting on the quality of your understanding, evaluating how well you've understood something, often referred to as comprehension monitoring. And a reader who is monitoring their comprehension will be aware if there's been a misinterpretation, for example, and will then go back in the text, just like a reader who is monitoring their comprehension and who has that metacognitive awareness of these sorts of signals in text will use them in order to ensure that they're integrating information across clauses, across sentence boundaries and into this mental model of the text. Hmm. So... um... I'm just going to say back to you a couple of things that I heard. Early in our conversation, we were talking about what reading comprehension is. And you mentioned, you know, as readers, we don't actually remember the individual phrases or individual sentences. Rather, we use those to construct a mental model of the text. And then you've told us that sentence level, paying attention at the sentence level to use you know, semantics and and then also understanding syntax or the words in the sentence. So paying attention at the sentence level is actually super important to building that mental model of comprehension. So number one, do I have that right? And number two, it feels like then some sort of focus and instruction at sentence level comprehension is important. Yeah, so what you've... uh Paying attention at the sentence level is very important because there can be these critical clues 
in there, these signals, and you've got to understand temporal sequences, you have to understand causal sequences, you have to know who is doing what to whom in the individual sentence. But what we then do, and unless we're learning a text because we're an actor on the stage, for example, we don't remember things verbatim. So in our mental model of the text, we don't actually encode whether before or after was used or whether a pronoun was used. What we actually represent is the state of affairs that was described in the text. You can only accurately represent the state of affairs described in the text if you have resolved your pronouns to Um, like kind of the correct item in the text. You can only have an accurate mental representation of what, of the events in the text and their sequence and the causal links if you have paid attention to those interclausal connectives, even though you may not actually be storing that precise linguistic information in your mental model. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it, it helps me understand how a couple of things. One thing is, if you get that sentence level comprehension, I, th- I think you refer to it as process, right? Like, so during reading, if you get that comprehension wrong, you're going to get a wrong mental model of the overall gist of the text. Is that right? Yes, it's one of the interesting things. One of the things I'm interested in is the dynamics of reading, both sort of like within a text and across time so if you think Mm -hmm. about reading a text the reader's constructing this mental model this sort of like meaning-based representation you know word by word sentence by sentence as the text unfolds so if you misinterpret a word or a sentence early on in the text the downstream effect is you may therefore not understand other key things later in that text And what we find thinking about this idea of comprehension monitoring and evaluating your comprehension, that's what's done by skilled comprehenders. And they can recover from these mistakes. But we all make mistakes and misinterpretations when we read. Mm -hmm. But because we're evaluating our comprehension, we can recover from that mistake by sort of like going back and checking the text. But a poor comprehender is less likely to do so. So poor understanding early on in a text can have significant downstream effects of their understanding of like the overall point or gist of the text. Yeah. Mm. That's got me thinking back to the interaction between the strands, because what you just said was word level. So we have to have sort of that foundational skills word level under our belt. We also then have to have this idea of sentence level, syntax, semantics under our belt in order to get to that comprehension. So all that to say what you've already said is that all these things actually work together to help us. That that, that they do, they all work together. And and often what we're talking about when we're in, in our research studies and when we're talking to educators, we do talk about these things distinctly. You, yeah. you, sometimes I think we can be guilty of maybe sort of putting them in silos, if you like. Yeah. But they are all important. So they can all have unique influences. They're all doing their work. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're working together because understanding a text involves so many different skills and knowledge bases so it would be wrong for a curriculum to entirely focus on building up 
semantic skills or vocabulary knowledge and neglecting those other components. It would be, you know, like kind of entirely wrong just to focus on that sentence level or just to focus on that background knowledge level. We're using these different skills and knowledge bases dynamically as the text unfolds in order to construct this mental representation. Hmm. So it's complex, but yeah. that complexity, you know, I mean, some one of, one of the um, analogies that I used um, in my writing was like thinking of, of an orchestra. And in an orchestra, you have like kind of, you've got the string section, you've got the wood section, you've got kind of, you know, your percussion. You have all mm-hmm. of these different elements and they all come together to produce this beautiful music, this beautiful symphony. One of them on their own, you know, they might be doing some work and maybe providing a melody or providing like kind of, you know, like kind of the temporal beat. Right. But on their own, they're sort of, you only get part of the story. You need all of them coming together to get that overall whole. And one of the things that is just fascinating as a skilled comprehender is the way that we just, you know, like we draw on these different skills and knowledge bases as we're reading a text and constructing its meaning. And it seems almost seamless and it can be really difficult for us as skilled comprehenders to reflect on this and think, oh, I'm retrieving a word meaning here. And oh, I'm applying a bit of syntactic knowledge here. Oh, I'm generating an inference. But it all becomes, as, as we see in, in, in the rote model, you know, th- these are all intertwined and they become very much sort of like automatic. We, we're using them spontaneously as we need to, as and when, during text processing. <laughs> yeah, that's funny to think about the, the um, you know, as I'm learning more and more about what it takes to, to learn how to read and, and all the com- complex systems that are in play, I still don't sit down when I actually read and start to apply those things like you said. I thought maybe, oh, like the more I learn about it, then it's going to get in in the way of me actually sitting down and enjoying reading, but it actually doesn't. So yeah, (laughs) thank goodness. (laughs) Um, I'm going to ask you another question too about like, what, what does this mean for for writing. When we think about syntax and semantics and we're talking about constructions of sentences, I'm assuming the reciprocal relationship also um, extends to both reader and as as writer. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that can be quite useful to actually create awareness for the child um, or the learning reader of some of these things is exploring writing and actually um, writing themselves. We don't always do it very well in that we say, you know, children are given exercises in sort of putting in lots of exciting, um, like, connectives into a text or using varied (laughs) vocabulary. But But if you do it right and you actually get them thinking and reflecting as they're constructing their own text, then that can feed in to their reading because by deconstructing the text um, on a page as a reader that can enhance your writing and then by producing written text you can understand better why that particular device or construction is being used um, like kind of in the text that you're reading so you can actually help to generate insight um, and you know there there, there is work looking at those um, interrelations between reading and writing you know again we, we sometimes 
separate them but right. we really need to think about them together and how they can support each other in in development hmm. that's a really good point um it's it's hard work teaching kids how to read and write um but it's it's so helpful to sort of pull back the curtain a little bit and understand a little more about about um the importance of language structures for sure but also the connections mm. uh, ac- across comprehension um i'm wondering um i know this is this is a tough question too but if you were going to give our listeners like maybe a couple ideas or concepts or takeaways what what would you think would be the most important thing for them to remember as it relates to language structures um so one of the things that I haven't yet done said, and I, I think this is important to mention, and it is quite important as a take-home message, is that we, we talk about language comprehension, we talk about language structures, we talk about the language basis of reading comprehension. So we think when children start formal literacy instruction, you, you know, yeah. that they already have their vocabulary knowledge, they have their semantics, they have their grammar and syntax, and certainly they're bringing years of experience in developing language, both sort of for understanding and production to the task of learning to read. But one of the really important things, and again, we get to sort of reciprocal relations here, is thinking about how the language of books is different to the language of conversation. And that is particularly important when you think about semantics and you think about syntax. So if you're reading a book, you are going to encounter many more and less frequent words in a book than in an adult conversation. And you Mm -hmm. even find that in comparisons of children's books to adult conversation. It's quite um, embarrassing in a way how impoverished (laughs) adult conversation is. Um, And and, and you find the same with sentence structures. So you have some sentence structures like a sort of the passive structure and the relative clauses are much more likely to feature in books than in conversation. This is one of the reasons these sorts of things can trip children up when they're learning to read, because they haven't had as much exposure. So I think, you know, it's really important to remember this. And it's really important to be reading to children from a young age, to develop their knowledge of these sorts of language structures and books, to be providing that exposure to the language of books. Mm -hmm. Um, Because some of this is going to be developed through reading experience. And I think the other thing, thinking specifically sort of about classroom teachers, and obviously you have very wide variation in reading ability in any classroom. But reading isn't just about children reading alone or reading to someone else. You can actually read to them. So you can actually read books that might be beyond some of the individual's word reading level, but is, you know, of a suitable content, a suitable topic Um, for their particular age group so you can provide exposure to these really rich language structures and also you know like pause and have conversations about why was that particular word chosen or why do you think the author has phrased this in a particular way so you can actually provide that exposure to all of the children in a classroom even those who are the poorer word readers and support um, the development of of knowledge of these language structures and their reading comprehension through that kind of listening task and interaction. Hmm. So both really, really good points. And maybe not only can you do that, you probably should be doing that in your classrooms with the early readers to help them start developing, um, you know, better language structures uh, and hear them modeled. 
Um, one thing I was talking about with Nancy Hennessy in the last episode too, was this idea that our language continues to develop as long as we are continuing to be learners. So I would imagine this also applies to both syntax and semantics or language structures that we're never really quite done learning them. That's a really good point. So um, some of this has been looked at in work um, by starting off with Keith Stanovich um, and colleagues thinking about sort of um, Matthew effects. And the idea with the Matthew effects comes from the Bible, the rich get rich, the poor get poorer. Mm-hmm. And what you find, what, what they found in their work was that individuals who read more so they have more exposure to the rich language of books. Over, well, concurrently and then longitudinally over time, they develop better um, vocabulary skills, better general knowledge, actually better um, spelling and word reading skills. So it kind of emphasises this point of the importance of exposure to books. And it's because something such as sort of like vocabulary or um, like kind of semantics is what can be referred to as Um, an unconstrained skill. So you can think of a constrained skill as being something like learning your letters of the alphabet. There's a Mm -hmm. fixed number of letters. Typically, everybody learns them and you learn them within a short period of time. But as you quite rightly pointed out, you can continue learning words throughout your lifetime. And hopefully, uh, we, we all do this. And you can learn also just more shades of meaning and nuances of particular words and you get I mean I find this in my own writing you know it continues to develop and I continue to say this to sort of like my students that you know your writing development doesn't stop at the end of like your PhD or at the end (laughs) of your postdoc it continues throughout your lifetime as we're exposed to different ways of expressing things and as we're exposed to sort of like new words so that's this idea of this sort of like unconstrained skill as you say you can just keep learning and learning and developing and improving Hmm. that that feels exciting to me (laughs) um all right finally um, I'd love to ask you if you're doing anything, any new research you're doing or any new exciting developments you've seen or heard about that you're, uh, that makes you interested and curious. Okay, so I guess that there's a couple of um, projects um, on the go at the moment that I, uh, are exciting and I think kind of like really important. One of them is I'm, I'm involved in a longitudinal project in which we've been following a group of children in the US from when they were in um, pre-K, so like sort of four to five years of age. And, you know, in this original project, we were looking at the language basis of reading comprehension. There's actually, actually two groups of children that we've been following. One is monolingual um, group of children who were speaking American English when they started in pre-K. The other sample was Spanish speakers at the start of the study but have been educated in English. They started off in pre-K. We're now reassessing these kids in grade nine. Wow. Um, so we've got this like amazing like yeah. kind of window of development looking and so now we're looking at much more sort of advanced level text comprehension and quite a wide range of sort of cognitive and psychological factors in addition to measures of language and literacy and we're hoping that you know we're going to our intention 
is to develop more sort of complete and comprehensive understanding of reading comprehension in early adolescence and also to be able to identify early on children who are at risk of poor reading comprehension by mapping these relations over time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we know that with intervention it's much better to intervene early and it's much better to have a targeted intervention. Well, if we can actually identify, you know, children, even before formal literacy instruction has really started, when they're in pre-K, what are the particular sort of like skills or weaknesses that put them at risk of being, you know, having poor reading comprehension later on? That will really help us to sort of like reduce these attainment gaps and um, like give targeted instruction. So, that, so that, that's one of the things. And that's it, exciting. And, and I can, we can also in this, and one of the, the, the things that is really neat is being able to also look at these reciprocal relations over time. You know, I was oh, talking yeah. about like vocabulary and inference because we've got these measures, um, at, you know, like kind of every time we sample the children, we, mm. we, we take these measures. So we can actually look at these interdependencies and see how like kind of these different elements of the strand, if you like, are contributing at different age groups, how they're contributing over time, how they're supporting the development of each mm. other. Um, so that's a sort of a, a watch this space um, sort of like big project. We've published some work on it under the, um, as the Language and Reading Research Consortium. And then our, our, our current funding, as I say, we're, we're going back to them in grade nine. Um, that's great yeah so so it's really and the the other thing I'm doing at the moment we're just starting out but I think this is going to prove really really exciting I'm, I'm working with some um, absolute um, experts in statistics who do very sort of like precise analysis of interdependencies and trying to find like change points within sort of like um, development so you can see where where something changes because we don't just simply like kind of learn in this sort of like and develop in this nice linear way you know sometimes there can be sort of you know a very steep rise in your ability in something what levers that what triggers that what enables you to suddenly step up to that different level or what for some children actually prevents them from stepping up to that different level and so we're just beginning some work now doing sort of a big data project if you like looking um to understand again like sort of how one aspect of literacy is interacting and influencing another over time to look at these change points. And again, I think this is really going to help to inform the evidence base that we need to reduce the attainment gap. That is really exciting. And we can't, we can't wait to hear more. So that gives us a reason to come back and, and talk with you another time. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the statistics involved, me, involved means that I'm learning a lot more about numbers as well as about reading and comprehension these days. Lifelong learning, right? <laughs> <Exactly>. Lifelong learning. <laughs> Well, Kate, it's been a pleasure. We do thank you so much for joining. Um, we appreciate your insight and particularly appreciate the work that you're doing for kids. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Susan. I mean, I've really enjoyed having this chat and um, sharing some of my knowledge with you and your listeners. Thank you. Thank you again. Thanks for listening and keep your feedback coming. Do you want to learn more? Be sure to stay connected by subscribing on your favorite podcast app, and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Visit Amplify.com to check out all our free literacy events and upcoming Science of Reading Symposium. Until next time, keep the hope 
take the action, and stay in touch.